0: to move to a foreign land and find a sense of home. This is one of the paradoxes my guest Fareed Asfar and I breach in this episode. I found myself surprised by how this conversation drawing on the Karachi and Pakistan of today and the Karachi and Pakistan of colonial times turned out to be so revitalizing in its affirmation of community. Fareed Asfar is the associate professor of history at Swarthmore College. His work has been published in various academic journals, and he has taught courses on subjects including the Enlightenment, the East India Company, and Victorian London. He recently brought together artists and academics across India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh in a project entitled A Tale of Three
1: Rivers. There's no way that a place like Karachi could have ever survived without extremely powerful bonds of charity and neighborliness, not just the EDIs, but like, you know, the the assumption that you have to take care of people around you.
0: I'm Maryam Muhammad, and this is Goldfinch. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and ask you, um, can you tell me where you were born and where you grew up? I, uh, You told me that you were born in Karachi um, or that you grew up in Karachi.
1: Yes, I am. I am. I am a hundred percent Karachi boy. Like I was born in Karachi. I grew up in Karachi. Um, and actually, the older I get, the more Karachi I actually feel. Mm-hmm. Um, the more, despite or because of everything that's happening in Karachi despite the constant carnival of catastrophe maybe because of it it just feels more and more like home and I feel a kind of comfort there that I don't anywhere else because it's and it's it's kind of you know for me it's um surprising because like many other people in Karachi I spent much of my first 18 years just wanting to leave or not wanting not out of not like not loving Karachi as a place but you know just having the idea that you know adulthood would happen after i left and went to the quote-unquote west but i grew up in karachi my parents were mahajar which you know what that means but for your listeners is the people who came over muslims who migrated from what was then india to what became pakistan in 1947 so my grandparents were my grandparents Actually, in some sense, would have bought for me to say that I'm from Karachi because the idea was that I was a Mahajir, I was from the UP, that that was really where I was really from, and that Karachi was just this place that they happened to be living in. But my work is now actually going is I'm the project that I'm starting is about Karachi, so it is um, you know uh, you know the it is very much uh, central. To um, even the, the kinds of questions that um, I find interesting about other places, which was not the case for a lot of the time that I was um, in academia right. until recently.
0: Um. It, yeah. I that's so interesting to me. I I am I'm very aware of like I I'm not a Hajar personally, and my parents are Punjabi. Um, and they're from the Pakistani mm-hmm. side of Punjab, but. Uh, I was definitely, in Karachi in particular, there's a huge Muhajir community, and there's such a strong sense of what being a Muhajir means. And I kind of want to draw on what you mentioned, like how life would start when you would go to the West, um, a feeling that I very much resonate with. I'm curious to know, when did you first go to the U.S., and what was that experience like for you?
1: Well, actually, the first time I came was for a week in 1984 which was because my mother, and I was, it was actually kind of exciting. I was taken out of school for the last month of second grade, um, because of the not exciting reason being that my grandfather was having a bypass. But for me, as a six-year-old, I was like, wow, how am I getting away with this? And then my aunt had just moved to uh, new york uh because her husband had just passed away and she was working at the un and she said just come to new york for a week mm-hmm. so um i did in 1984, and then i didn't come back again until 1994 and since then i have been more or less continuously living in the states although i did spend a year in pakistan uh, after the year after i graduated not the Immediately following year, because immediately following year, I was doing my "quote unquote" practical training. But it was the subsequent year that I went back and I lived in Pakistan for a year. But other than that, I've I've been in the states since '94.
0: When I first came to the U.S., I remember being particularly excited by the yellow school bus that I had seen in a lot of cartoons yeah. and um, in TV yeah. shows. And I'm curious to know um, if you had similar experiences and what those were like for you, if it lived up to the kind of image that that you saw fit and in the culture that we are immersed in, in this weird sort of uh, hybrid space <laughs> in, in Pakistan where... Um, There's like so much Western culture. I uh, I'm not sure what that was like in your childhood.
1: You're way too young for this, probably to even know. But you might have seen memes about Star TV, right? Like that was the in 1991. They there was a that was the first inroads of cable television into Pakistan. Uh, So there was this thing that there was a the company called star tv which actually was centered somewhere in singapore and it had um four channels Mm -hmm. and one of them was mtv um which over the time that i was in high school went from being mtv mtv to becoming this thing called mtv asia and then there was star plus which was broadcasting like 1980s daytime soaps like santa barbara and bold and the beautiful and Then there were a bunch of other things that also were somewhat more what Americans of our generation were new. But most of actually, and and then before that, actually PTV in the 1980s had a lot of American sitcoms, a lot of 80s sitcoms would would play. So Full House, Perfect Strangers, all these other sitcoms from the 80s would play in Pakistan. Um, And I, that meant that when I came to the States, I could in a weird way relate uh, more to when my classmates who were American talked about, you know, their, you know, childhood TV than I could, um, in the age of cable TV, when suddenly we'd been like sort of dislocated from whatever was happening culturally in the U S now, obviously none of that, all of that changed with the arrival of, um, streaming content and all that, but. You know, my brother was then a grad student at Columbia. And so Mm -hmm. seeing Tom's Diner and being right there and then watching Seinfeld was, you know, it did create. um, It was a satisfying experience in some sense um, to be to feel um, not feel like a complete outsider. And it's interesting how much my references to that are about popular cultural events. I mean, that was also when OJ was happening. So like it was. I think the trial had started the year my senior year in high school and then concluded my my first year in the US. And I was just I mean, back in the mid nineties, people from Pakistan were not we were non-entity. Like people didn't have good or bad ideas about us. We were just international we could be from anywhere and it would make no difference at the same time and this is going to be a very very controversial statement i think in some ways coming from pakistan pakistan is like a is is a good country to migrate to the us from because actually they're very similar there's like many similarities in terms of you know how people speak about um corruption and how people talk about the the there's a combination I I mean the thing that I miss about the US is when I'm gone is exactly the same as the thing I miss about Pakistan, which is like a certain kind of warmth mm. that you get in a really screwed up society. There's like a certain, you know, a certain kind of intimacy, a certain kind of way that people will talk to you at the bus stop or there's a connection there that I you know, especially when it, I would fly sometimes from these really shiny airports in like Tokyo or Singapore or flying from Amsterdam and then you arrive in New York and it's like right. at least back then wasn't that different <laughs> from Karachi Airport. It was like the paint is kind of peeling off the walls, nobody's in a line. <laughs> and um now you know in my in much older I'm like, yeah, well I mean I guess the are remote settler colonies. So, you know, I mean Pakistan is not technically a settler colony, but it was it, you know, it had so many of the different issues that we have, um, so many of the ways that memes can translate so easily and that Pakistanis can be enraptured or, and have the particular combination of curiosity and schadenfreude they to have towards the U.S. are a product of what is actually a shared history.
0: I, I listened to your first collection um, speech, which you probably, oh my god, yeah, <laughs> yeah, from a million years ago, um, and I particularly appreciate the way in which your mind like draws connections and in, in all of these, and I feel like that's that's something special, perhaps, about historians or people who look at like. Just things that happened centuries ago, sometimes millennia ago, and they see these like similarities in in, in societies, but like also in in us, in the human enterprise, and how, um, that uh, that can be so relevant. there there's the things that are so timeless. And I, I was thinking, I have so many thoughts about what you said, but when you said about when you talked about Tom's Diner, that reminded me very much of when I came to the US and the first time I went to a diner and it felt like it, I felt so at home, like I knew exactly where everything was and um mm-hmm. it's it, it's such a it's such an interesting experience um to have that kind of displacement i'm i'm not sure like it it really did feel like i had a lot in common with the people who are here perhaps more than i do with my own mother and i'm curious to know that is uh like how that's like for you
1: yeah i mean when i go back um i'm instantly read as an outsider Mm. and that means that i'm treated better than everyone who's not an outsider and my Urdu is actually pretty good. Um, I mean, it's not as good as you know a lot of people in Karachi's Urdu is good, but yeah. it doesn't make a difference because I present as someone who has lived abroad, and in especially right now in Pakistan, it's like there's the the things that have been happening in the last two years, like going back has has created, you know, there's like. different experience with the economy collapsing and the way that karachi was always a place with like really outspoken store assistance right like you couldn't mess around with the with the clerks in the stores because you were in karachi it didn't matter who you were or where you were coming from there was like a certain kind of repartee and a certain kind of equality that whatever 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 way we want to call it that that I always loved about it. And what kind of disturbed me in the last couple of times going back was a deference um, from people in stores, people in other places that um, comes from the fact that people need money, people, there's all kinds of socioeconomic crises unraveling every day. There were, salmon was raising its specter this summer. And so that, I mean, that particular, fact which isn't about me in pakistan necessarily but about something that is shaping the history of the nation at large does very much very much make me reflect on my privileged relationship to the place now right um i mean my relationship was probably also privileged like five years ago but it was i didn't feel like i had to tiptoe or you know that i had to calibrate my weight in the way that i do now Mm. and at the same time there's all kinds of new things and new exciting discussions that are happening in pakistan i mean at habib but then also i mean i was in in this last trip that i was back in there was this you know the seminar on decolonization at the State Bank Museum of Pakistan I mean none of those things would have made any sense to anyone like mm-hmm. 10 years ago and a lot of these are that 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 it isn't just a conversation that um is an elite conversation um that there are all kinds of new movements uh that are causing alarm and violence from the orthodox elements in our society and right. there are changes in uh that are um, exciting and deeply deeply satisfying to be witness to and part of um and but there's you know there, the difference is always there right it's like i mean it's like you come here and you read news about home and then your american friends might in a very well intentioned way ask you if
0: yeah. you've heard
1: whatever About happened back floods, home and you're yeah. like
0: <laughs> or the the you're like the vote of no confidence or things like that. The
1: vote of no confidence. Or you know, like it's like you're like, yeah, that happened. And by the way, like seven other things happened last week and that are not worthy of news coverage in the West. Like why is this like the one thing that has like taken up? But right. then also, you know, people asking you to explain to stand in for your country and you know we have as Karachiites very conflicted relationships to where we're from and that conflict is deeply tied to love but also Mm -hmm. to a certain kind of pain that comes with love like you don't feel that pain if you don't feel the love and then you're being asked to explain it to an outside person it can you know it can cause a lot of stress and uh going back is always it doesn't matter how how long I grew up there or how many times I've been there in the last four years. It's always just a relief to see the place as the place that I know and not, you know, whatever has been in the soundbite. And so that is is the condition. It's a. I mean, I think there's a lot that i've seen a lot of different essays that people have written in the last few years about the pakistani condition of being pakistani and being abroad and how you know that's that's just very much its own thing it's it is own combination of defensiveness and pride and intimacy and despair hope.
0: i think you you touched on very eloquently um the kind the simultaneous sense of tragedy I think in particularly these past few years the the last time I went to Pakistan it was such a, a a horrible kind of reverse culture shock that I hadn't quite experienced in the times before because it was it seemed to be hotter than I could I had ever remembered mm-hmm. it as it seemed yeah. to be poorer than I had ever experienced yeah. it um and it's just Uh, Also, talking to my sister, my sister who um, lived in Pakistan her entire life and then recently moved to Dubai with her husband, um, she goes back to Pakistan a lot. And the last time I was speaking to her, she was telling me about – I asked her about her friends, uh, which I thought was an innocuous question. And she said, actually, I've only seen one of them because the rest of them have moved away. And there's been um, yeah. this kind of like dispersal of all of these friends of hers that I remember seeing over at our house. Um, she she told me about some of them who'd gone to different parts of the Middle East, some were in Australia. And then personally, of course, I know many people who are in the US and Canada, in Europe. And there's yeah. that... So there's a sense of tragedy and heartbreak from that. But then there's also... Yeah the, you know, like, uh, seeing the the sessions that Habib has been hosting the on the postcolonial higher education conference, I really don't remember that when I was when I was younger, I that kind of like hope and, and heartbreak is a particularly interesting place to be. Um, and yeah,
1: and it's I mean, it's a young, it's one of the youngest countries in the world, right? So like, the fact that this is happening amongst the youth is, so promising that these conversations are starting to happen and not just in academic spheres, but in places like LinkedIn or Instagram or, you know, like that there is this kind of discussion of what went wrong that actually is going to be more penetrating because it's going to go back into the, not just the colonial roots, but also the pre-colonial roots of the place that becomes Pakistan. But as for your friends leaving and all that, I totally resonate with that. It was, for me, I mean, I remember in 1999, which was the summer of the nuclear tests, was when I Mm. went back after my practical training to Pakistan, and everyone had gone. Karachi seemed like a ghost town. Mm. Um, There was this sense of, like, and I felt then that that's what it would always be like. That it would always be like that. And that my house, like the way you're describing, was like a place where all my siblings' friends were there all the time. And certainly loneliness was not a problem that any of us ever had. It was like, when do we get a moment of quiet? And then suddenly everyone was gone. But right. I don't know, I don't know if this is enough consolation that they came back. People came back. Mm. The The house didn't become what it had been before, but there, there are phases when people leave and then there are phases when people come back and, um, people come back for all kinds of different reasons. They come back sometimes because of their parents, but sometimes they come back because things might get better or they might come back because, uh, you know, that there, that, that there's a moment of dislocation that is a temporary moment. You don't have to think it's always going to be like that, but Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people that are leaving that we wish would not leave. Um, yeah. but there also are a lot of people that are being created that we wish would not leave. I mean, that are, you know, at different stages, their their intellectual development. They might be from college. They might be just graduating from college, but you know, it's a, uh, there's always, it's just a very unpredictable place. Pakistan is extremely unpredictable and you never really know what is gonna turn that's gonna allow something good to maybe happen even if that good thing gets reversed and it really is there's like uh a, there's a, some kind of strength in the society that comes from the state being such a failure there's no way that a place like karachi could have ever survived without extremely powerful bonds of charity and neighborliness, not just the EDIs, but like, you know, the, the assumption that you have to take care of people around you. I did internships in Karachi organizations when I was in college. And then I, when I was living in Pakistan, I worked in both in Karachi and in Lahore, I mean, and in Islamabad. And, you know, you work in an office in Karachi, you, it doesn't matter if people like you or don't like you. You're that you're their friend and they have to take care of you. Right. Like if everyone goes to lunch, they have to make sure that they take you to lunch. And like that's, you know, there's that beauty in that that um I think explains um why life goes on and why we're able to survive and we're able to continue.
0: The first co- uh, you spoke to the class of 2018 and first collection in 2014, and I listened to that, and um, it was um, I, I'm I don't expect you to remember it, but I will say that uh, you talked about internet trolls, but also trolls more broadly, and the 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 thing that you said that reminded me was about how. Like how you talked about how Karachi functions on these these acts of kindness. And you talked a lot about anonymous acts of kindness. And you said um, Mm -hmm. this thing in particular, you said the last few days getting around Philadelphia in crutches. I learned a lot about the kindness of strangers. And you refer to these people as good trolls. Um, and i'm i'm curious uh if you could just speak more about about that and also the <laughs> parallel that you drew with the warmth that americans show um and how that's like similar to pakistan
1: yeah i mean it, it, it i i guess i was also I'm, well now now you're really putting me on the spot that was <laughs> that was what year was that 2014 that was 2014 um, yeah <laughs> and um I remember, yeah, I mean, as I was on crutches and I had to be golf carted into the amphitheater. I remember that. But I remember, I mean, that was actually, I think the beginning, I think the word troll had just come into existence. And I'm not even sure that I was using it properly in all the different, I might have been really stretching the definition of, of the word troll, but it, everyone had a good sense of humor about that. I guess I was constantly humbled mm. by um, the difference between what I expected to be the reactions of, uh, you know, the highly capitalist, individualistic society that is the U.S. And I was kind of amazed at, at not not at the you know universal kindness of all strangers, but of at many occasions of how much I had, I had, I had discounted the kind of, the possibility of kindness beneath exteriors that I didn't immediately read as kind exteriors. Mm. So I think that's, that, that was something that, um, I mean, it's interesting that you're mentioning that in relation to this comment about Americans and warmth, because then in 2018, I actually had to, for a number of different reasons, give the speech at the immigration ceremony. Um, And in that one, I talked about how the ability of Americans to, to kind of break out of a certain set of, you know, a certain kind of idea of like, this is me, this is my family, you're in the seat next to me, we have no relationship. And I was always Surprise that that Americans of all the people in the quote unquote West would be the least resistant to at least breaking the kind of the aura of the individual and right. of you know and of relating across two strangers. Um, that is something that um, I guess now that you're mentioning it is a theme in um, different things that I've done at different moments.
0: So we talked about like just the the. The kind of theme of empathy and community that stretches through your it stretches through your work, but also um, uh, humor, which I thought was interesting. Because first of all, the the idea of trolls um, was was pretty humorous, and and you also said that people were were took it in good humor. But also, um, I, I I thought it was interesting that like when you spoke at Habib, your the title of your presentation was turtle hunters capitalist war in mm-hmm. colonial karachi and i was not thinking that turtle hunting
1: the reality behind the image that the whole post-colonial generation of pakistanis was taught which was about how you know the british might have been bad but they were really good at conserving the environment and all this other stuff and that you know that this the idea that the the colonial episode in Karachi could have had the kind of the particular brutality and absurdity mm. that's evoked by the notion of the turtle hunt. That was probably something that I was getting at in, in that title. I probably consciously and subconsciously um, dip into a tone that might seem to some as maybe, maybe even overly flippant given the seriousness of the subject, but it is always important um, to kind of to think about who our audiences are and to think about how the way we're framing something does shape the kind of people who are likely to follow along right. and the kind that who are and the kind who aren't And so the experience of speaking at a place like in the conference in Habib or just being back home and, and talking to people about my project and you know what I'm what I'm saying you know there's a certain kind of skepticism that you experience. Talking to Karachiites and Pakistanis about
0: right.
1: the the extent of the colonial destruction that I just don't experience when talking to most other people outside because they most of the time they just they don't know anything about it and they don't want to. I've I've given versions of that same talk in you know Finland and Oxford and all these other places and not gotten a certain kind of resistance that I will <laughs> get in a drawing room in Karachi. So part of the humor is also about you know yeah I know how all of you think. And this actually is related to this thing that all of us know about the place that we're from. And, um, so humor is important to that. And I guess that was also, you know, I mean, I was thinking about the first collection, um, and about how all of you, I mean, I guess you weren't there yet, but that all the people, um, that you, you come to college and you, everyone thinks that they're kind of out of place and, they all think that they were the admissions mistake, whatever. Everyone's a little bit nervous, a little bit scared. So I thought I would go with that.
0: Uh I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh there's uh I want I want to talk to you particularly because um, you know, you've done all of this work on Karachi, but also you've done work on um, these really complicated intersectional issues, and I uh, the 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 line that you drew, the connection between um, colonialism and climate change, and I believe I remember you saying, talking in the Habib conference about how Karachi is going to be affected by climate change. Something certainly that I um, or is already being affected by climate change, and I'm I'm curious to know. Um, uh, the, the about the project that you did or that you are doing, I'm not sure if it's ongoing. The Tale of Three Rivers. Um, mm-hmm. If you could talk a little bit about that, like because I thought it was sure, yeah. so fascinating that you kind of um, that you're working in collaboration with these people across like Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and. Um, yeah. that it seems to be very much a storytelling project. And also the the subtitle it is really so is, interesting, yeah. the subaltern, a subaltern feminist yeah. map of the the Indus, the Ganga and the Brahmaputra in the Little Ice Age. So, yeah, just curious to hear you talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So the, I've been working on this reverse project for a very, very long period of time. But, the, but the more specifically, it was... Last it wasn't last summer, but the summer before that, when the floods well there was a heat wave, right? In all of in all of our part of the world, in India, Pakistan, right. and Bangladesh, that resulted later that summer, which was I guess the summer of twenty twenty two, in extremely devastating floods, especially in Pakistan. Right. And that I had been noticing it actually one of the big inspirations for that was Instagram. Mm -hmm. And being, witnessing both the Chagras, you know, extreme altercations between South Asians of different descent on all kinds of other issues, actually thawing in this really weird way, not necessarily turning into friendship, but turning into these weird common, weird feelings when people started talking about what was actually happening to the physical landscape of their ancestors home so for instance pakistanis talking about scenes of things that were happening in the ganga or indians who you know people from south india who are of Sindhi origin looking at a picture of some kind of catastrophic scene involving the river and saying something about you know this is my ancestor land i mean that there was something about the the unity of the crisis, not the unity, it's not like any of these climate crises affect all places in the same way, but there was a a sharedness to that, that um, a shared, you know, ethos that then also traveled even more or became more apparent to me as, as there were certain kind of folk tales. Hmm. Uh, For instance, the, all of the, um, there were a lot of people that were, Um, starting to discuss, or, you know, they were citing Shah Abdul Latif, who was this famous Sindhi poet, um, and people who had never been to Sindh, but who had some kind of connection to that place, and, you know, like Shah Abdul Latif's poetry was being connected to some kind of image that wasn't even necessarily an image of the Indus, and I started thinking, I I got, I, I spent actually a lot more time on the on that, on the application for that project, because it actually kind of became uh, a fascination for me to see how much, how, how many similarities there actually are of different kinds of folk and or anti-orthodox, anti-elitist narrative stories that come out of these three different riverscapes um, in a broad, across a broad period of time. One that we can go back to, the ancient cities in this valley, but that certainly is something that even in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, there are are all these different genres in which people are describing relations between humans and climate in ways that are very similar across these three different riverscapes, despite the fact that there are such huge differences in language and culture and religion and all that.
0: Right. And...
1: I'd also, so it was, that was in a way that, intellect like, that was the hinge or the hook for the project, but even more, I wanted a community. I wanted, I wanted, I'd had conversations with Indians and Bangladeshis that were better than conversations that I'd had with many Pakistanis and I wanted, and it was the same for many of them. And it was, you know, it wasn't just about breaking national boundaries, but it was like, you know, we're all, we have all these other people. I mean, I'd. I've just been having a lot of organic conversations with different people back home at conferences, uh, friends of friends, relatives, uh, academics who I happen to meet, but not in academic context, about this historical space that I increasingly started to see as a real historical space, which is the space created by these three rivers, um, that happens to extend or expand through these three, at least three different countries. But is also not a place that we ever actually think about ourselves as being located in, you know, because they're not within the boundaries, our national boundaries. And, you know, I was very nervous about it for many different reasons. And one reason I was nervous about it was that it was, you know, there was no, I I couldn't actually code switch in that conversation because it had people from every area of my life. It had people I'd known since my early childhood, to my students, to academics I'd never met to friends, and we were all connected around a certain topic, but there was a kind of urgency for everyone involved also to be, just to make the connections that would allow the community to come into being. But in the end, it was really, um, I mean, I can't speak for all the other participants, but it really did make me want to continue it. Mm.
0: I certainly uh, had never, I feel like uh, perhaps this idea had been, kind of um marinating in my head for a while the 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 kind of unifying power um that the fear of the climate crisis can have and um i think particularly for the rivers it's really interesting i i had never seen a map before i looked this up a map of the three rivers just the rivers connected over the
1: subcontinent nor had i
0: um nor had i it was actually something
1: that i hadn't seen even after i'd written this like there was like i was googling and i was like oh wow that actually is the shape like i i'd I'd already written all this other stuff but before i'd actually looked at the map
0: Mm. i think particularly water as a resource um you know, when when I think of water in Pakistan and in India, I think of the, the the decades of conflict over it. Over it, and it was interesting to see it instead as an ancestral unifying historical space, mm-hmm. as you described it. Um, I also uh, wanted to ask you about. I mean, as I'm sure you know, like there's uh, there's not a lot of open discourse about sexuality in Pakistan. And I think it's really interesting Mm -hmm. when I read some of your work that you were writing about uh, about sodomy in Victorian London. And I'm curious to know what that what personally drew you to that and how coming from a society where there's such strong notions of shame around things like this, how what that looked like for you, talking about it, researching it.
1: So, I mean, actually, the the thing that I was, the article that became the sodomy article was originally, I had been um, writing about the church, the politics of church and state in the 18th century, which might make a little bit more sense. It was 2003. Uh, Iraq War was in full bloom. Um, everyone was talking about East and West and Church and State and how Islam needs to have a Reformation, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not going to suggest that it was like part of this like big anti-colonial move that I had in which I was going to take down the Anglican Church. But I was interested in the politics of Church and State in the 18th century. Um, in in England, Um, and I was then also starting to work on this book that I'm now finishing about slavery, and so the reason I was in that archive, it had nothing to do, I I was not actually looking for sodomy. It was not something that was in, that was at all a preoccupation that day, and I found all of these documents, and I knew enough about the history of sexuality to know that they were kind of important, and then I went and I discussed them with, um, this leading scholar then who, in a, which is such, it's such an, I mean, I think about like little moments of generosity and what a difference they make, but this person said to me, don't ever present these documents until you have published this article because, um, they're really important and you don't want anyone to know that you even have them until you've done this. And I was like, okay, really? Are they really that important? And then I kind of, you know, a a number of different things kind of fell into place in which any kind of inhibition I might have had about, you know, discussing or writing about sodomy as a Pakistani um, so publicly kind of evaporated when it this was also a moment. I mean, there happened to be this like special issue of this leading journal that was all about the theme of sexuality and I needed a job. And so I was like, you know, this is, topic in which i have all this material at that point i had equivalent of two articles to publish i need to really kind of dive into it but actually until you just mentioned it i had completely forgotten that there ever had been any any inhibition Mm. um back then that there, there was there was a moment uh when i first started grad school where i think i could have gone more into the histories of sexuality where there probably was some form of like It's actually a post-colonial shame specific to upper middle class English speaking elite Pakistanis around sexuality. They have a certain kind of shame that nobody else in society actually has around, not just sodomy, but the whole subject of sexuality. Um, And um, I was really, really, really surprised having watched Joyland in Karachi. I don't know if you've seen it. i've not but i've Um, heard
0: a lot about it yeah
1: so i watched it with family and then i had multiple conversations about that movie with multiple members of my family that i never ever in my wildest dreams imagined i'd be discussing transness and you know different kinds of relationships between uh people that are not authorized in our society but i keep for me people keep asking i mean it's, americans are always like oh what is it like being home for you and i'm like actually the biggest problem that i mean the biggest challenge i have with being home is like the rigidity and extremity of class relations mm. and how much how much that's just taken for granted um how much how much that that's actually something that i find much much more intolerable the more i go back and i do remember someone saying once when i wrote that that now that i've published this article i could never run for office in pakistan i was like (laughs) well that that settles that because that was not in my list of intentions
0: i wanted to just ask you about one particular thing and then we can we can wrap up um I uh, so you talk a lot about shame um of course and like sodomy in Victorian London shame mm-hmm. is an important uh plays an important role and when I read about uh what you say when I was reading what you say about that um Use it, there's a particular quote you say in 1756, Bristolite Emmanuel Collins would attack sodomites by evoking their shamelessness. Undaunted and upright, they crowd our public walks, unawed by guilt and unappalled by the fear of any impeachment. Um, when I read this, I was so I was. It just seems so shockingly similar to what people I'd, I'd heard, uh, mm-hmm. just how people in Pakistan talk about the Aurat March or the Women's March. For exactly. The yeah. So yeah. I, I thought that was really interesting. So, I, mean,
1: I mean, to continue what I was trying to say about Joyline also is that like, you know, I mean, I think that you could look at the repealing of or the attempted repeal by the Sharia court of the Transgender Act as like a sign of society going just back. But I think it's important to know that that repeal is also a reaction to Joyland and the aurit March and the Climate March and everything that that represents, that we are and always have been a very, very complex, conflicted society. And I think that, I mean, I think that I'd never actually thought about it until this, until this interview, that I do think that though both those sodomy pieces were reckoning with not just the conservatism of Pakistan, but the, the dynamics right the the way that you know a certain kind of stridency or openness always leads to a kind of really extreme backlash that and then that backlash becomes the only thing that stays in the public eye so people don't people are then surprised when there's another art march or there is a new kind of march or maybe there's a march that is too ambitious but that there's a there's this constant kind of back and forth between in which the the kind of the the breakdown of a certain kind of social structure, which is happening all over Pakistan, creates um, an anxiety that then becomes manifested in uh, a fear of a complete upturning of everything that makes um, stability possible. Right. And this is in a society in Pakistan where everyone, man or woman, made to feel not everyone, but most people, you know, have a very clear. It is like getting married is it, it, it's something that you do for your parents and you do for society. And it's part of this, you know, that society depends on you getting married, not just you and your relationship to the parents. And that in the case of the reactions to sodomy, there was also uh, in, in the kind of, um, in the moment when a lot of these discussions were happening in the middle of the 18th century, there were many forces that are in the background to that article that I didn't really discuss them, but I actually happened to have reread it once recently and been like so many of the discussions, so many of the problems that are being discussed here are problems that are specific to this vastly expanding Imperial state in which the structure of the family is collapsing for many, many reasons. Right. Not that you know the the existence of you know sexually autonomous women or men presenting as homosexuals is is just one little part of that. And I think that it's very similar in Pakistan that you know the the art march can exist in a way because so many because this is because we're not you know we're not an authoritarian state as I keep saying to people and people are like. What do you mean? I'm like, no, we're, we're, we might be a failed state by some criteria, but or a failing state, but we're not a state that's authoritarian in that sense. And, uh, I think that, um, my, uh, you know, that, that it's not like I looked to London for answers to questions about, uh, the society that I grew up in, but I think I was naturally attracted to a certain kind of dynamic a certain kind of push and pull, action and reaction that just made sense to me coming from that society. And of course, if you go deeper into it, I mean, like, it is quite interesting to think. I mean, like, 18th century English sermons really did help me understand my grandparents because they were literally brought up by these Anglican priests in different stages of all their different lives. And they had, like, you know very similar ideas of like, you should always be active and you should never be unemployed or you'll become an idol out and then you'll go to jail and there'll be shame and the whole family, you know, there was, there was like, there really was, that was unexpected. It wasn't something that I was looking for when looking at those different dynamics and those different discussions. But it is, um, it, it is um, interesting what you're, what you're pointing out. I hadn't talked about, I hadn't thought about that. So it speaks to your, exceptional skills as an
0: interviewer (laughs) oh my goodness i uh well i really appreciate um uh you being willing to kind of dive into all of your work um and also so many of your life experiences i think this has been a fascinating conversation um i uh yeah i think um it's just uh, what you just talked about like speaks to the kind of the timelessness of certain things which is why I feel so fascinated by history um as a discipline but also like just seeing how the world around us is constructed and nar- with narratives yeah. um
1: I mean that was that was something that like I remember it, I also went to a class at Habib I um, mean I attended I audited or I mean I sat in a, in a class and you know there were like there was a discussion, of, I think we were discussing, they were like teaching Franz Fanon and discussing Fanon. And oh yeah, they were talking about debt and climate and reparations. And it was just like the the instinctual insight that all the students at Habib had about like the way that power works and the difference between the reality and perception combined with a certain sense of humor, Karachi sense of humor about how powerful people are was really inspiring for me to see because it was there was that sense that, you know, of and and there was also that was combined with the kind of humility in which, you know, students came up to me and asked me things like, Are we as good as students at your institution? And I'm like, Yes.
0: You've been listening to Goldfinch with Maryam Mohammed. Thank you to the Richard Rubin Scholars Program for making this summer possible. You can find more information on the podcast and on this episode on my website, edu.